for my, in my view, which is the view I think of most American Negroes, or the experience of most American Negroes, the situation in Alabama and Mississippi, which is spectacular and surprises the country, is nationwide. Not only could it happen in Florida, it could happen in New York or Chicago or Detroit or anywhere there's a significant Negro population. Because until today, all of the Negroes in this country, in one way or another, in different, different fashions, north or south, are kept in what is in effect prison. In the, in the north, one lives in ghettos, and in the south, the situation is so intolerable as to become sinister, not only for Mississippi, or for Alabama, or for Florida, but for the whole future of this country. White people are surprised, I think, at the vehemence of, of Negro feeling and, the, and the, um, the depth of the danger. But and I don't think it has caught any Negro by surprise. One has been in a terrible situation for a very, very long time. Well, well why could it happen? Why, why does it have to be violence? Why can't it be something other than violence? Well, and part of the, part of the reason, I'm, one is doing one's best to avoid violence. But one of the reasons that it could happen that way is because for so long, for a hundred years, the American Republic in general has ignored and denied the whole situation that Negroes have operated within. The, to be a source of cheap labor, for example, North or South, is to be, in effect, oppressed. Now, the oppression is bad enough, but the myth that the country has created about the object of the oppression, the myth about the Negro being happy in his place, is something the Republic has managed to believe. And so that in addition to the, uh, the fact of oppression, one has also the fact that within the country for 100 years there's been a way of life occurring in the country which most of the country knows nothing about. And this is reflected, for example, in the way Negroes talk to each other. It's a kind of language which does not really exist on what we like to think of as a major level of the American culture.
saying that you think possibly if uh, separate but equal facilities had been provided for Negroes that, that, that none of this might have happened? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm I didn't saying, think you meant to no, say no, that. No, I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to suggest that. But I did mean to suggest that the NAACP at that point was, was not at that point trying to, to change the law, really, but, no. but doing what, again, what Negro leaders are always trying to do, which is to try to save the children, <clears throat> to get the children, to give the children some, to invest the children with the morale. And you can't teach a child if, if he's, the situation in which he's studying is intolerable. And one, we all know that. Now, it is also true that you cannot really, no Negro child who's going to a segregated school, which may have cost millions of dollars, is fooled about why he's there. He's there because white people want him there and no place else. And that is, you cannot educate a child in that context either. Do you see? It seems to me also that while you are asking uh, white people to change their estimate of the Negro, to raise their estimate of the Negro, you are also saying to the Negro that he ought to do something to raise his estimate of himself. Isn't that true? Well, it's one of the, um, it's one of the great problems, let me put it this way, of being an American Negro in the first place, that you are taught, really, the, the entire weight of the Republic teaches you to despise yourself. All the standards you look, when you open your eyes on the world and you look out at it, there is nothing reflecting you. As far as we can tell, for example, from television programs, there are no Negroes in the country at all, or from most Hollywood productions. The country has arbitrarily declared that kinky hair and dark skin, wide nose and big lips is a hideous thing to be afflicted with. Now, the Negro parent, in this case, I say I'm the Negro parent, has to use everything he can find to counteract the Republic's attempt to diminish this child. It is inevitable, then, that by, a by the time a boy becomes 20 or a girl becomes 20, they are in great battle inside to release themselves from what the country calls them. You see? Now, this estimate of oneself is a very difficult thing, you know, to change. But, but this is part of the battle. One has got to do that. Thank you. 
Negro leaders, and let's consider you one of the Negro leaders, are Negro leaders encouraging conditions of violence, 
No, no responsible Negro leader can possibly... All the people I work with and know are working as hard as they know how to channelize an energy which they know is there in order for it not to become violence, but to be, to be candid. There is something amazing, really, in, in the fact that it is not... that Negroes have not been violent sooner. No. There is something very impressive, in my view, in the ways in which Negroes have managed to deal with this, this situation. And um, the kind of discipline, the interior, the interior discipline demanded of an adolescent to sit in and to, and to, and to boycott and to undergo all the, all the things one's got to go and undergo is, 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 is an extraordinary thing. And if, if it were true that this was a new Negro that he'd never been seen before, that would be a miracle. And what has really happened is that these people have been coming a long, long time. And in the 30s, for example, when people like Roy Wilkins from the South as hobos trying to organize unions and being beaten and clubbed and murdered. The Republic ignored all this, but every Negro child growing up knew something about it. It is, it is a Republic, I repeat, that has been captured by its own myth of the, of the, of the subservient Negro. And now is surprised to discover that the myth was never true.
Thank you. 
Baldwin, uh, as, as far as inspiration goes, uh, what about the 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 for, uh, fair play for Cuba committee and things like that? What, what inspiration do you get from aligning yourself with these groups? The fair play for Cuba committee, for example. Um, well, if you want to, it's a can of beans, it's, and let's open it. I was appalled by two things. I still am. Um, by the press attitude of the Cuban Revolution, shortly after, shortly after um, Castro had taken, had, had ta it uh, expropriated, you know, American property. I also felt, mm. now speaking as Negro, I'm speaking for myself, as a member of no organization. I, I also felt that we, the American government, the administration in power at that time, made a terrible mistake in dealing with Castro, because the Cubans, no matter what the press says, you know, have a right to their land. You know, it was a revolution which came from the bottom. And, what, and it is very dangerous to try to oppose that kind of revolution. And in my point, from my point of view, we gave that island as a gift to the Russians. Right, but, but you're also an American. From, from your point of view, isn't, isn't Cuba a threat to our country here? Well, speaking as an American Negro, um, it depends on which country you mean. You've got to remember that the country which white Americans have boasted so long is a country I have never seen. And now speaking not only for myself, but speaking as, um, as a family man, it would be very hard for me to know exactly what to say to my nephew, for example, if he were going to go into the army. It would be very hard for me to invest him with any morale to persuade him that there was some overwhelming reason he should go to Cuba, to free Cuba, in defense of a government which couldn't free him. And in any case, no matter what I said, this is a question you'd have to be a fool not to think about. And from that point of view, again, it seems to me we made a very great error. When Castro and Khrushchev went to Harlem, it's our fault. They went to Harlem because Harlem is there. And as long as Harlem is there, we are in danger no matter what we say, no matter what kind of rhetoric we use to cover the, you know, to deny the disaffection and the very dangerous despair of 22 million people.
once there was a clown. And let me tell you about this clown. He used to raise a sweat every night out on the stage and just wouldn't stop. That's how hard he worked. He was trying to make people laugh. He used to have this cute little gimmick where he had a seal follow him up and down a ladder, blowing Columbia, the gem of the ocean, on a B-flat Sears Roebuck Model 322A plastic bugle. A real cute little laugh. But they didn't laugh. The people didn't laugh. And you know, a few little things were here and there, nip nip nap, but not really. And he was booked out on all of those tank towns playing the Rotary Clubs and the Kiwanis Club, the American Legion, the this, that, and the other club. And, and, you know, and he just wasn't making it. And he had all those wonderful things going on inside of him. He had a wonderful greens and yellows and, and all those oranges. And he's a real happy guy. And all he wanted was to make people laugh. That's all he wanted out of life, is to make people laugh. And then something began to grow, something that just wasn't good began to grow inside of this guy. began to trouble this clown you know little things little things once in a while should happen that would make the crowd begin to move but they were never the right things like for example the time the seal got sick on the stage all over the stage the crowd just oh they just broke up you know they laughed like crazy little things like that and they weren't supposed to be in the act at all. And they weren't supposed to be funny. And this began to trouble him. And it bothered him until the pain began to grow inside. All those greens and all those oranges and all those yellows. They just wasn't as bright as they used to be. All he wanted was to make that crowd laugh. All he wanted was to make that crowd laugh. That's all he wanted. And there was this one night in Dubuque when he was playing this notary club. And all those 
those dentists and those druggists and those postmen and those butchers, bakers and dishwashers. And he was leaving the stage when he stumbled over his ladder and fell flat on his face, just flat on his face. And he stands up and of course he's got a bloody nose and his face was a mess. And the crowd, crowd looked, took one look at him and they broke out laughing. Oh, they had him rolling on the floor. He just knocked him out flat. And this begins to trouble him a little bit more, a little bit more than more. And he begins to see something. He begins to see something. changed his act. He bought himself a set of football pads, a yellow helmet with red stripes, and he hired a girl to drop a 10-ton pound, a 10-pound sack of flour on his head every night from maybe 20 feet, 30 feet. Oh man, it was a hit. That just broke him up every night. Not like the Buke, not like the Buke. And all of those colors, all those yellows and those reds and those oranges and a lot of gray and all he wanted to do was to make the crowd laugh. That's all he wanted out of the world. They were laughing all right, not like the Buke, but they were laughing. And the dough started coming and he was playing the big town, Chicago, Detroit. And then it was Pittsburgh, and one night, real fine town, Pittsburgh, you know. About three quarters of the way through the act, a rope broke. And down came the backdrop right on this cat's head. And he went flat, and something broke. This was it. What hurt way down deep inside. And he tried to get up, and he looked out at the audience, and man, this... He had laid them in the aisles. They were laughing. They were laughing like crazy. Oh, you should have seen that crowd rolling in the aisle. This was even better than Dubuque. This was bigger than Dubuque. He really had them going. But this was it. This was the last one. Oh, he began to get calls. His agents. Agents were getting telegrams from London, from the Palladium, from the Palais de Chaillot, from the concert, who's it? From Chicago, from all over the world, Tokyo, Hong Kong, everybody wanted the clown. But it, it, was, it, was, it was too late. This was his last one. 
This was his last one. This was his last one. This was his last one. was to make them laugh. Well, they were laughing, but now he knew. He knew what had happened. Ah, uh, the agent, William Morris, kept getting offers. 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 25,000. Everybody wanted to buy the clown. Everybody wanted to buy the clown. They offered all kinds of money. This is the greatest act ever. More laughs than ever in the world. Send us the clown, they said. We'll pay you. And William Marsh sent a wire. It said, uh, let's see, William Morris was his agent. It was, William Morris says, William Morris sends regrets. Charles Mingus, where are you? Oh, take a bow, fellas. You uh, have tried uh, expatriation, and you have undoubtedly examined the communism as a solution of these problems. And you have seen other Negro intellectuals like Dubois go communist. And yet you uh, reiterate from time to time that you are American, that there's more potential here than there is anywhere else. Would you like to comment on uh, how you arrived at this position and uh, just what you mean by it? Well, in the first place, it's been only my own experience, you know, with, um, with communists when I was in high school in my teens. I was never attracted to it for a very simple reason. Too many politicians had promised, too many American politicians, I mean, had promised too much. And the communists promised the moon. So I distrusted them for, on that basis. And my experience with them, you know, trying to work with the Stalinists, was so disastrous that I never really understood why anybody assumed that the Balkan Negro population would be attracted to, 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 uh, to, to communism. But when I say I'm an American, it's something I discovered when I was abroad, because I got off the boat in France, no matter what I thought of myself as being, all I was then was an American. I wasn't anything else. You couldn't call me anything else. And this led to a kind of examination of what I take to be the real energy of this country, you know, in which I, you know, oddly enough, I really believe in it. And when I say that the potential here is greater than anywhere else in the world, I mean that in this, the revolution that is occurring here now is unprecedented in my mind in the history of the world because it's revolution. Baldwin, I'm sorry to have to interrupt the questioning here. We'll be right back after this message.
ますよ。